You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Empire. Hello and welcome to my podcast. Got a full show for you today, folks. And ESPN senior college football writer Adam Rittenberg on with me to discuss Chase Young and other possible targets high in the draft, as well as some thoughts on Dwayne Haskins. In 2017, Rittenberg sat in an Ohio State quarterbacks meeting and had to share some anecdotes about the time there with Haskins. Then I have ESPN Panthers reporter David Newton. He discusses a few topics from the Redskins' full-year coaching intern, Jennifer King, to Ron Rivera's free agent and draft philosophies. And then I close it out with my thoughts on two big topics, Trent Williams and Quentin Dunbar. First a trade, now not a trade? What the heck's going on? First, my conversation with ESPN's Adam Rittenberg. And now I'm joined by ESPN senior college football reporter, Adam Rittenberg, and I wanted to bring him on to talk about Chase Young and some of the other Ohio State guys that are going to be possibilities here and and who are already here. So Adam, thanks for joining me first, but just in general, what were your thoughts on watching Chase Young this season? Well, Johnny, he was incredible to watch. He's a guy that we'd heard about for several years within the Ohio State program. Look at Chase Young. He's going to be a star for us. I remember even as a freshman, he was sort of uh, marked as someone to watch. Uh, Obviously, tremendous physical abilities. And it all came together for him this past season in some of the more dominating individual efforts that we've seen at the college level. Certainly the game against Wisconsin, which I covered in person, was uh, unreal. Just unblockable. Uh, was doing everything out there and, and was not exactly an unknown going in. And Wisconsin's known for their offensive line play and their pass protection, and they couldn't do anything against Chase Young. And, you know, you saw that you know, really for much of the year. Didn't end the year maybe as dominant as he was in the middle part of the season, but uh, certainly, you know, a guy who was deserving of all the accolades he received. And with, with I'm going to get to the end of the year stuff first, but why do you feel that when he was a freshman, and I'm – Listen, I'm an Ohio State guy. I followed them, so I know there was some talk about him. But he also wasn't a finished product coming in by any means. So why? What were they seeing behind the scenes that you that you you know that maybe led him down to that conclusion that he'd be that good? Well, I think that you certainly saw what he could be physically, and that that you know not every Ohio State lineman looks the same, but very few college defensive linemen look like Chase Young did this past year, just physically. So I think they saw that potential. You know, Larry Johnson, as you know. Uh, John, one of the best def- defensive line coaches, if not the best defensive line coach in college football. You know, he had great familiar, familiar, familiarity with, Trace, with Chase and um, has a track record of producing high-level players. And so I, I think just some of the things in practice that he did, you know, flashing here and there, as you mentioned, you still needed to get better in certain areas, better against the run, improve his body a little bit to what we saw this past year from him. 
physically, but um, I, I think there was enough there that Larry knew. You know, Larry's pretty good about knowing when he has something that's potentially right. elite. And uh, I think he did know that pretty early in his career and, and certainly molded Chase. And, you know, Chase deserves a lot of credit for the development as well. And then Ryan Day, I think he told you after that Wisconsin game that, I think you said that he was the best he's seen or been around. It was actually Larry Johnson. So he, we, I was down on the field at the end of the game and, and saw Larry you know, coming off with his family and you know, kind of just asked him, you know, is that, I know you've seen a lot of really good ones throughout your career. He was at Penn State for many years right. before coming to Ohio State. And, you know, he, he, he kind of <laughs> shook his head and said that that may have been the best. And, you know, another strong endorsement, uh, you know, from an NFL standpoint, it came from Jeff Halfley, Ohio State's uh, right. co-defensive coordinator in 2019, who's now the Boston College head coach. You know, Jeff had spent, I think, seven years or five, six or seven years in the NFL before coming to Ohio State, and he 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 felt it was one of the best individual performances he'd ever seen, NFL or college. And so, um, you know, he he definitely is impressing coaches that know what it looks like at the highest levels. It's not just you know, you know, your typical college coach who's saying that it's Larry Johnson who's produced a lot right. of really good linemen, including including both Bosa's. It's, it's Jeff Halfley who's coached in the NFL on defense. So, the, you know, and Ryan Day obviously uh, was, was very impressed with what Chase did as well. So what, what do you think happened at the end of the year? Like, again, I mean, again, I'm watching these games and I think the expectation is, that, hey, he's going to get home at some point, and he did. Now, now there sometimes it was close, but how did you – how did you – process his last couple games and then talking to people how did they view it like why he wasn't finishing as much I guess yeah it was a little bit you know again Wisconsin you, you give them credit they weren't going to make the same mistake uh, they did in the first meeting right. with Chase that's the Big Ten championship game I remember talking with Chase after that first Wisconsin game and he was surprised that they were just using slide protection they weren't double teaming him or triple teaming him even when he was having that dominant performance I think Wisconsin did a better job of limiting his effectiveness in that second game. If you remember, Wisconsin dominated the first half against Ohio State and, and maybe should have been up even more. And then Ohio State dominated the second half and ended up winning. But I think you, you get, you know, those are good coaches at Wisconsin. Their offensive line has been their signature unit. Bill Rudolph has done it for many years. Paul Christ, obviously, as well. They were going to make sure that you know, if they lost the game, it wasn't going to be because of Chase Young. So I would give the, you know, Wisconsin more credit there. You know, Michigan just something seemed off. You know, I, I don't know if it was more, more of the Michigan uh, you know, scheme and what they were doing, and they were throwing the ball pretty well in the first half of that game. But um, you know, I just didn't see the same uh, level of, uh, of energy and effectiveness from Chase, which is, uh-huh. which is surprising. I mean, you know, you, you know, he knows this is going to be his last game against Michigan. He's never lost to Michigan. You know, he, he was very vocal throughout the season about, getting Ohio State to the college football playoff and what you know, everyone knew would be his final season as a Buckeye. So that, that, that was a little bit more of a head-scratching performance that yeah. you know, he wasn't more uh, dominant because you, you've seen other teams. I mean, Iowa was really good against Michigan, their defensive line, and some of the other defensive lines that Michigan had faced earlier in the season. And so you just expect Chase Young, the best defensive lineman in the country, to, to perform really well in that game. And it, it, he, he wasn't really visible. And, and I think that, that made it pretty clear if it wasn't clear already that, you know, he, you know, he would you know, maybe get to New York as a Heisman finalist, but he wasn't going to win the award. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And then, you know, the other thing, too, and I think you, you probably mentioned this in some of your articles, but, like, there were times where you would see that maybe they wondered if offensive linemen or offensive coordinators kind of saw ghosts when it came to Chase. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like, 
they're doing things that even though he may not impact that play, he's still kind of impacting it indirectly. No, no doubt. And I, I, even, I mean, another game that I saw him live was Northwestern and Northwestern was really struggling this past year, but um, you know, he, he, I think only had one sack in that game with the amount of times he affected the play. Um, and, and, and that did happen to get to his credit, uh, you know, even in the Wisconsin Big Ten championship game, um, how, how often that, that just plays were being disrupted or timing was being disrupted because you have to contend with him coming off of the edge. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was, again, very few times he was on the field that you didn't sense his presence, even if he wasn't forcing a fumble or, or hitting a quarterback or sacking quarterback or breaking down a ball carrier at behind the line. He was very much a presence out there at all times. And, and again, you, and you've seen a lot of guys, you know, in college football. I'm like, <clears throat> the question that for Red, the Redskins, I think Redskins fans wonder if, because they have that number two pick, and there's a big assumption that they're going to take him there. If not, you trade back. But can you get an impact player at five that's of a comparable level? So a guy like Jeffrey Okuda, his teammate at Ohio State, or Isaiah Simmons, a linebacker from Clemson, how do you view those two guys in relation to Chase? Yeah, it's, it's a great conversation to have. Um, you know, I think Jeff Okuda, talk about a guy uh, who, who improved just dramatically this past year. Another player who obviously came in as a high-level recruit, but um, hadn't really made his mark. You know, he was just kind of a guy before the 2019 season. And I just mentioned earlier Jeff Halfley. Uh, you know, I think Jeff Okuda blossomed under Jeff Halfley. I mean, that was his guy. That was his project. And to have a coach who had just worked with, uh, you know, NFL DBs working directly with you, I think you, you saw just how effective uh, and, and, and improved uh, Okuda could, could, could be. So it's really what, what you know, I think the Redskins have to evaluate what they want the most. Do they want sure. an, a potentially elite level pass rusher? Do they want a, a potential lockdown corner? Or do they want a guy like Isaiah Simmons, who was the most versatile defender in college football by any measure last year? Now, I don't know enough, um, and I haven't talked to enough scouts, and you might have better perspective on this, John, as far as what he actually will be at the next level. I think he, yeah, I think you you have a much clearer picture of both Young and Okuda uh, because they're so clearly a defensive end and a quarterback, Uh, whereas Isaiah Simmons, you know, he, he can line up at all three levels of the defense, depending on what the scheme is, at least at the college level. I mean, Brett Venables used him all over the place. And in talking to coaches about Clemson and their defense, especially going into the championship game with LSU, the feeling was, you know, they are not a lead on defense except for that guy. That, that's, the, that's the guy. Right. So how are they going to use Simmons against LSU? Are they going to put him on the running back out of the backfield? Are they going to try to match him up with a tight end? Are they going to try to rush the passer? which several coaches told me they would have to do because it would be their only chance against Joe Burrow. Um, and, uh, you know, again, just, just the amount of places that he was on the field for Clemson and how effective he was, was, was really remarkable. I, I, again, I didn't study him as closely right. the previous years because you were so wrapped up with, uh, with the defensive line that they had and some of the others. But, but wow, what a player and a really unique player. But I, I would say in some ways a riskier player because you just don't know what he's going to be. Absolutely. And, you know, so what you've seen, because, again, I think Okuda sometimes was, I wouldn't say overlooked. It's just that when, with the way Young was going, so much of the defensive stories about him. But Okuda was really good this year. So I'm just, in, in talking to people within, that, within the program, do they view those two guys on comparable levels? 
or did they say, you know what, Okuda's great, but man, Chase is just something different? What Chase did and how visible he was, it, you know, it was hard to, to really equate anyone to him. But, right. you know, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Hasley was very open about how good Jeff Okuda is and how good right. he's going to be at, at the next level and how, 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 how he took to coaching. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't I think it wouldn't be a mistake at all for for a, a team to, to to bring him in and develop him and 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 just see and just see how good he can be. Um, I'm just I'm just going back here to kind of read some of the quotes that when I talked to Jeff Hafley ab- about him. Um, you know, he, he said here, uh, you know, I wanted him to understand how to play zone and read uh, routes and understand concepts, and he has. It's been so much fun coaching him. I wish I'd been around this kid for a long time because he's so much fun. Still, his, this is the key. Still, his ceiling's so high. I just try to get everything I can out of him. So one one plus for Okuda is, you know, Chase Young had three years under Larry Johnson, who I think we all agree is an elite defensive line coach. And not nothing against the previous coaches for um, Okuda, but imagine, you know, if Jeff if Jeff Halfley had Jeff Okuda for three years instead of just right. one, how good he how good he could be. And you have to assume whoever gets him in the NFL, as long as they're doing their job right, is going to be able to provide that same level of instruction that Halfley provided Okuda. So uh, that, 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 that gets you excited about him if you end up bringing him to Washington. Hey, were you switching gears a little bit too? Because, and I, like I said, I mean, watching both those guys, I think either one is going to be a really good NFL player. And I think it's like you said, it's, do you want the pass rusher or do you want the shutdown cornerback? Um, but switching gears to a couple guys who are already here, Dwayne Haskins and then Terry McLaurin. Were you surprised, given what you saw of Dwayne in 2018, some of the either issues or struggles that he had early on in Washington and some of the things that maybe were coming out of here? Yeah, you know, thinking about it now, I'm not that surprised. I mean, the thing about Dwayne is that he was very young. Um, right. you know, I still remember uh, sitting out, you know, one of my favorite memories in covering Ohio State was being in a quarterback room before the 2017 season. And I went down there really to figure out this new Ohio State offense. You know, they brought in Kevin Wilson from Indiana, and they brought in this little-known assistant from the NFL named Ryan Day, who'd been with Urban Meyer before. And so I actually was in a quarterback room with Ryan Day, and it was J.T. Barrett was the starter uh, entering his final season. And then it was uh, a guy named Joe Burrow who was sitting there as the backup. And then Dwayne Haskins and then Tate Martell, who's now at Miami. And Tate obviously had some struggles. Yep. Um, and, 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 and I remember in the meeting vividly, you know, they would kind of make fun of Dwayne. He, he was behind in terms of the knowledge. Um, okay. Now, what happened shortly thereafter was, uh, was Joe Burrow had a, I believe it was a hand injury. Hand injury that yep. sidelined him for a good, good chunk of the season. And then Dwayne ended up playing in that Michigan game and then kind of taking the job from there and obviously had a tremendous record-setting uh, junior season under Ryan Day um, at Ohio State. But, uh, you know, th- there was just a sense that you know, his knowledge was, was, you know, a little bit behind at least going into that second season. And to his credit, he, he made some strides. But to, to your point in the NFL, the fact that he didn't come in and, and, and blow everybody away, I, I wasn't shocked. Right. Um, but I still think he's, he could be a really good pro, got a big arm, you know, ran a, an NFL-style offense really that final season when he set all those Ohio State passing records. And so I, I, I still have a lot, of, a lot of high hopes for Dwayne uh, being, being in the NFL. And it does seem like with him that the, with the, even in the NFL and at Ohio State, the deeper his level of understanding was of what he was doing, the better his play got. And then you could see more of the talent. 
No, no doubt. And, and again, he, he, he played his big year. There was a very unusual season for Ohio state. I know you understand this, John, as someone familiar with that program, Ohio state is not a traditional elite quarterback program. It's just not like it's right. a program of linebackers and running backs and linemen. And so Dwayne Haskins, the year that he had to be the man, Ohio state struggled to run the ball. They struggled to protect. Um, they had all sorts of issues with urban right. Meyer and, and what's he going to do and, and the way the season started with him being suspended. And so, you know, really their constant, their defense was a mess. Defense was breaking down left and right. So the one constant they had was Dwayne Haskins and the ability to throw the ball to that really yeah. good receiving core, including Terry McLaurin. Um, and so that, that was their offense. That was their identity. And so I give him a lot of credit because, you know, Justin Fields, as good as he was this past year, he had Chase Chung, he had Jeff Okuda, he had J.K. Dobbins. A different J.K. Dobbins. Still had some really, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, um, and I know J.K. also played with Dwayne, but was you know that run game was not was, nearly what it was uh, no. this past year. No, it wasn't. And the last last thing I want to ask you about, Adam, and thank you for spending so much time with me. Terry McLaurin had a great year. Um, again, based on what you knew coming out, I, the Redskins were really really excited after they worked him out and then saw some of his workouts. Um, and they felt like they would get a gem in him. Did you, are you surprised, were you surprised at all by what he did this past year? You know, just a little bit. I mean, I, I just, you know, we knew that he was a tremendous athlete. We knew that he had great speed. Um, him and Paris Campbell, one of the fastest wide receiver tandems just together in college football. And he's just a great kid. I mean, one thing I will say, uh, uh, a couple of times I've gone to this open practice um, at Ohio State that they have in the spring where they bring the students into the Woody right. Hayes Center and, and they do some fun stuff. You know, Terry McLaurin is so popular and yeah. is such a beloved uh, guy in that, in that community. And I'll say this too, just from our earlier conversation, Chase Young also really impressed me uh, just with how he interacted with all the fans and all the students and taking time during that practice when he's obviously a very visible player, wasn't a superstar like he w became that season, but still a guy that everybody knew about right. um, and, and was very, very gracious. So both of those guys, I think, from a character standpoint, um, are, are terrific. And, you know, it's great to see a guy like Terry uh, succeed um, because, you know, you know he, he was one of a group at Ohio State. Yeah. It, was, it was Terry McLaren and, and Paris Campbell and K.J. Hill and Ben Victor and Austin Mack, and it was the group. Um, whereas uh, you know, he's really stepped out and showed that he can be a, a, a very special NFL player. And, and that's exciting because, um, because of the development potential you have with Lane Haskins, the quarterback. And, and so, yeah, he, he has probably exceeded my expectations a little bit for his rookie year. But as far as the skills, I always thought, at least with, with one real plus skill and the speed, if the other things could be developed, then he could be a, a very, very good pro. Adam, awesome. I thank you for your time, and I'm happy that I got through this without asking you any of the 100 what-ifs from that Clemson game with Ohio State. So I'm not – I don't even – didn't want to go there, and I'm not going to go there, so I, I just – we'll leave it right there. So <laughs> thanks for joining me. Great discipline, John. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. After this break, I'll be back with ESPN's David Newton, touching on Jennifer King's coaching and Ron Revere's philosophy when it comes to free agency and the draft. Newton covered Revere's tenure in Carolina.
And now I'm joined by David Newton, covers the Panthers for ESPN. When because he covers the Panthers, that means he's as more familiar with the Redskins coaching staff <laughs> right now than I am. And especially the latest hire, Jennifer King. Um, she was an intern with the Panthers a couple years as a coach. David, first of all, for you, for those listening, David has written a couple really good stories on Jennifer King. So you can go Google those on ESPN.com and get a real, some really good insight into who she is and why she's in this position. But Dave, what can you tell us about Jennifer? It's funny that when she first got the job with the Panthers, her office was right. I mean, she could literally right above the practice field. She could hear them practicing because um, she was coaching basketball at the time. And so uh, she, she just, you know, it was really interesting the way it all kind of came about. And she met with Ron Rivera and they hit it off and, um, she's been really good. The players like her. Um, the coaching staff likes her. She's really capable in what she does. She knows she knows what she's talking about. Um, and you know, she grew up in this area, so she's she's had a lot of longtime ties. And you know, again, she's she's the person she would have loved to have been able to play the game, um, right. but there's plenty of leagues for her to play back then. So now she's this is kind of her passion. I mean, as much as she liked coaching basketball, this is her passion. So. Um, I think it's really cool that she's getting this opportunity in Washington. What did the players, and I know you, I think you talked some, some of the guys too from the AAF who played for, including Rashad Ross. What did they tell you about her? They said that the first thing they said that she really knows the game at, uh, you, know, you can't go out there and try to, to, to fool her into thinking you don't, cause she knows everything about it. She's good. They listen to her. They, that she can teach them and she uses them, the way she teaches them. They, um, it, it's, they, she's good at making players understand what they need to do. So um, it, it's kind of like if you watch uh, women's basketball versus the men's game in, in basketball, um, yeah, they're not dunking and, and doing some of the spectacular things that the men do, but their fundamentals are, are probably better than the men. And that's what she's really strong at, teaching those fundamentals and getting these players to understand that that's what you got to do to be effective in this league and be consistent and have a long career. Why do you think a guy like Ron Rivera isn't afraid to make this kind of a move? He's been that way for a while as far as being in the forefront. I mean, you remember Ron Rivera was a minority coach, and it took him right. a long time to, to get a job in the NFL as a head coach, and he knows the struggles. So I think he kind of relates to, to what uh, – and, and hey, Jennifer is a minority. I mean, she's uh, – just fact being a woman makes her a minority in the NFL. So right. she under, he understands that and all the struggles you go through to get that. So I think he, he likes promoting that. And he's a guy that, you know, he, he keeps his, and I told you before, he keeps his wife uh, with him wherever he goes around the team because he wants players to see her presence in the locker room, what she can offer, um, and just his relationship with her. And I think this is just another layer to that. And, you know, it's funny because one of the discussions, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it on social media and all that. And I did have one small discussion on Twitter the other night about would this become a distraction? And I don't believe it would. I think this is a this is a positive story, you know, and just because people come in asking about it doesn't turn it into a distraction. To me, a distraction is when and having been out here for a long time, the distractions come when it's always this negative stuff. And like, why doesn't this player like this? This, or why doesn't this coach like this player and, you know, blah, blah, all those kind of things. How did yeah. the – I mean, so do you – I mean, do you agree with that? Like, I don't see this becoming any sort of an issue where it's like – comes a distraction by any means. 
I can't see that happening whatsoever. It never was a distraction here. Uh, there was never a hint of it being a distraction here. Um, again, the players respected her, and I think that's the key. Right. Um, she demands that respect, and, and they give her that respect. And and she told me, she said her goal is to be an offensive coordinator in college and NFL someday, and this is her first step towards doing that. Um, you know, you got to – it's going to take a while because she's got to prove herself, and um, it, it's just a good sign that, that she's finally getting a chance to, to prove herself on this level. That's just another step up in the ladder of what she's trying to accomplish. I mean – I mean, she played wide receiver, you know, in, in a women's league and, and did well. And then, so, again, she, she knows the moves and she knows what she got to do to get open. In fact, I, I talked to players and they said, she's taught me things about how to create space and how to get an open. So she's made uh, me a better player by what she's done. And, and you know, and that's, to me, a good coach is a good coach and players like people. I don't care if, you know, if they're male, female, they're going to like a coach who they feel can help them. And again, the distraction to me would come is if some coach can't help you, then guys start to talk, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. Why do you think she was somebody who was kind of undeterred in going down this path? Because this is what she wanted to do all her life. She wanted to be a football player. She wanted to coach football. She, she loves the game. Um, she wants more women to be able to be involved in the game. And then she, she just feels like, you know, maybe she won't make the most money out of doing this, but that's not the most important thing to her. She's, but she just wants to make an impact on, you know, not only male players, but eventually female players lives in the game of football. I, I was looking back and at one of the stories I wrote on her and she, she coached basketball because she felt she didn't have any choice. There wasn't another option. Sure. Um, but football was what she wanted to do. Um, and then go, I'm going to kind of segue to another coach here because the last time we talked to David was right after Ron Rivera was hired, hadn't yet completed his staff. And the, one of the key spots was filled by, you know, Scott Turner, who you covered in Carolina and his North son. What, what did you think about that hire? You know, they gave Scott the opportunity here to, to be the offense coordinator for the final four games after uh, Rivera was let go. And, um, I mean, it really wasn't a fair evaluation of what he could do as offensive coordinator. Um, you know, he, he, he obviously had Christian McCaffrey and was able to lean on him heavily, but he's using backup quarterbacks that are going to continue to be backup quarterbacks in the league next year at that. Um, so it's really hard to judge him. I thought his play calling was fine. Um, I think you see a lot of his father's influence in his play calling. Um, he likes to throw his own twists in there and do things. I, I think he's going to be a good offensive coordinator. He's been, like I said, he's been around it for his entire life. And there are not many better, I guess, influences to have as far as an offensive coordinator than North Turner, his father. So um, I I think that's a good move. I mean, I think that's probably – I don't think Ron would have hired him had he not believed that he could – do what he was looking for uh, and, and what he's trying to create with Washington. And he's good at working with quarterbacks, especially. Um, and I think that's an issue that uh, really needs to be addressed in Washington because your quarterback right. situation there. So um, I think that's going to be a plus there. So I think you'll, what he's going to do for the quarterback position and, and how he'll work to take care of their strengths and u- utilize their strength, I think could be a real plus for the, for the Redskins. And when you say he's really good with quarterbacks, what was the what did what what would they tell you about him? Or is there anything that in particular that he was doing um, with the quarterbacks that made him effective? 
he just related real well with them. He was really strong at teaching them the fundamentals. Uh, if, you, if you look at what Cam did is uh, when he had him for a while and his completions percentage before the injuries set in uh, back in, uh, what, 2017, I mean, that he was he was looking really good. I mean, Cam will tell you that he was playing – well, he gets 218, I guess, but Cam will tell you that he was playing um, – better football and making better decisions than he had made back during his MVP season of 2015. And I think a lot of that was Scott Turner's influence. Um, and also, David, at this point, Greg Olson, as we're talking and recording this, Greg Olson is still a free agent. He is he's visiting the Redskins on Monday. Um, so I'm just going to take a jump here in case the Redskins do sign him between then and or now and when this comes out. What, what does he have left? Yeah, he's not going to blow past you and uh, be the, the the super fast guy. It's, it's funny. We tease him about that when he gets in the open field after a catch. But he's still really good at creating space. He's a really good – he's a smart guy. He's More than anything, uh, he'll bring leadership to that group, and that's something that I'm guessing you probably need a lot of that, especially with your quarterback situation. He was there from the beginning with Cam Newton, and Cam – he became Cam's security blanket out there because he knew how to get open – and Cam could always depend on having him as a big target out there. And regardless of which way the Redskins go with your quarterback situation, I think that's going to be important uh, to, to have that out there. And I think he can I think he can still help a team. I know he wants to play for contender. He doesn't really want to be a part of a rebuilding job. Um, the Panthers are in a total rebuild here, so there really wasn't a place for him. And his salary, it, what it was, they weren't going to pay that kind of salary for what they've, they've got to do. So uh, he, he's just a smart guy. and. Um, I think I think whoever your quarterback is, it's going to listen to him. Um, he'll help him grow as a quarterback and, and become better there. So um, you see tight ends get better and better, a lot of them. And they, again, not as fast as they were, but later in their career. And um, the, the cool thing about Olsen, though, he's really good on TV too. So he still has that option in his back pocket. Um, yeah, I'm told he's going to probably go ahead and visit Seattle as well. But uh, – I don't think you can go wrong with Greg Olson. He's one of the classiest uh, guys I've ever been around in the NFL. And then the last thing I want to ask about is Ron Rivera. And there's two things. One, the Redskins obviously have the second pick, and Chase Young is the guy that's most prominently mentioned there. Um, knowing what you know about Ron, would you be would you pretty much anticipate that he would select Chase versus maybe trading back? You know, I think he's – he will take the best player available. That's the best player available. Probably even the better player of the overall draft because of what you know he can do. The quarterbacks always seems to be an unknown. Um, even a Joe Burrow, what he could do his first year in the yeah. NFL. So uh, I, I think that sh that almost seems like a lot to me um, unless something happens. I don't, he really didn't trade back. He liked using his first pick. Uh, to get that uh, difference makers, they call them, uh, at the Panthers. And he had a lot of really good first-round picks. And if you go back to what he and Marty Herney did especially, um, that was the foundation of the team that made the Super Bowl. When you look at from Luke Keekley to Cam Newton, the trading for Greg Olson to uh, just on and on down the list. I mean, he, he didn't trade away those high first-round picks because he knew, he knew the impact and the long-term value of that. I just don't think there's any way you turn your back on that. From everything I heard, Chase is going to be a star from the beginning. And and Ron Rivera with his defensive background, um, I think he's brilliant on the defensive side. I think he will be – that will be a benefit for that organization. And uh, it just seems like a match made in heaven for them right now. 
then the last thing, his, his, his approach to free agency, what, what did they typically do in Carolina um, with free agency? They were very uh, selective. They, they, looked, they broke down the roster. Uh, they looked at what their biggest needs were, what they could get out of the draft, and then they, they picked guys. A lot of times uh, they took some older veterans that they could build around. Um, he was really good with using some of those guys. The year they went to the, the Super Bowl, they had to insert some players like that. It didn't work out so well the last couple of years. Uh, but again, a lot of that goes back to the quarterback and Cam Newton being hurt for much of that time. And then Greg Olson was hurt during that time. A lot of, a lot of injuries that really influenced it. And then you go back and look at some of the, uh, look at the story I did. Um, it ran last week on how they went from a Super Bowl team to maybe one of the best teams in the league in 2015 to, to total rebuild down. And if you go back and look at the draft, um, it wasn't first rounder, but uh, that, that really hurt them. Although they had a couple of fails, but some some picks under Dave Gettleman um, really failed them, and they didn't have that foundation to keep things going after uh, after what they've got. It's going to be curious what uh, you know. Because you know, guys like Josh Norman, he he really benefited from a guy like Ron Rivera. Right. Um, it, I mean, it's again, I, I think he's a really good builder of of men and players. Awesome. David, if, if for people who – it's funny because when I need to find out about the Pan, the Redskins' new staff, i got to talk to David because he's got good insight in them, and I appreciate you joining me. Thanks a lot. Anytime, Joe. I appreciate it. After this break, I'll be back with my thoughts on Quinton Dunbar and Trent Williams. While it's good that Williams has started talking again with the Redskins, one big stumbling block remains. And what might Dunbar fetch in a trade, and why is he now saying he didn't request a trade? Let's discuss. I was going to do a mailbag this week, but with a couple issues popping up, I wanted to address those instead, and I'll get back to the mailbag for the next episode. Let's start with tackle Trent Williams. He has finally talked to Coach Ron Rivera the first possible step in getting him to return. It's clear that Rivera wants to build a strong offensive line, and my strong sense is he'd like to keep Brandon Sheriff and Eric Flowers around as well. He wants to build up both sides of the line, which is why a guy like Chase Young makes a lot of sense for him. I'm not going to go down to that draft debate right now. This is about Williams, and the dude can still play. Usually, if certain people in the organization are done with the guy, they'll trash his play. Or, they, you know, he's on the downside, he's whatever. But with Williams, it was always about how good he still was and what he might get them in a trade. One front office member told me after the trade deadline that if anyone didn't think he was worth a certain pick, meaning a first, all they had to do was put on the tape. That said, Williams absolutely upset people in the organization last year with how he handled his situation. They didn't like that he threw the entire medical staff under the bus. They wanted him to name names. Williams was uncomfortable doing that. He didn't want anybody to get fired based on what he said. They always felt it was as much about or more about money than his medical condition. Williams would disagree, but regardless, money would have solved that situation. With Rivera here, and Bruce Allen and Larry Hess, the trainer now gone, there's a definite appeal to Williams. However, it's not about meeting with Rivera as much as it is what owner Dan Snyder will okay in terms of money. I think that's what, that's what this is going to be about. I will say, as far as Snyder goes, I think if there were a big issue, I don't think these steps would be taking place. I don't think Rivera would make it a priority to try and keep Williams here. Um, so the fact that this is going on is a good sign in that regard. I will say, 
If Snyder didn't want him, then Rivera, would, again, wouldn't be trying to repair the relationship. In December, Williams said, after I asked if this place would be more desirable if Allen should be fired, he said he wouldn't say no to return, but that, he, but that they were still far apart on some issues. Those issues were money. He still wants the guaranteed money, or maybe you can give him an extension because now he only has one year left on his contract. They were afraid to do that with two years. With one year, you're in a different spot. So it's good to talk. It's clear what will talk most in this situation. It's easy to see why Revere wants to try and keep him. Where else are you going to go and find a left tackle like Williams? Even if they trade him, you're not going to get a pick high enough to take a comparable player. And it would be a shame if they had to trade out of that second pick just because they needed to find a left tackle, settling for possibly a good player and passing on possibly a great one. No guarantees. We all know that. So maybe Young doesn't do it. But that's just that's going into the draft. That's how, how he looks to be. Williams still has several more good years left. That's another key. And I think good years at a, at a high level. Revere and the Redskins know this, which is why they're going down this path. Now, on to Quentin Dunbar. And to be honest, I recorded this portion already and then had to re-record it because he came out Wednesday and told Doc Walker that he didn't make any requests to be traded. Okay, so here's what I know because I reported that story and so did others. And that's what I say. For starters, he did make the request to the Redskins. And there's a reason why I, along with multiple others on the beat, reported this Monday night. Heck, J.P. Finley even spoke with them that night. I know that the Redskins were aware of it because I got a call from somebody that night who was curious if the news came from inside or outside the building. They're trying to plug all leads. And I will say this, I'm, I would never tell somebody where I got the information, but, you know, but yes. Anyways, regardless, the person told me only a few people there knew about the request. And the point was, it was made. It was never, it was, nobody ever said, hey, where did this come from? So now perhaps in Dunbar's mind, it could be that it was something along the lines of, if you don't want to sign me, if you don't want me to keep me, if you don't want to keep me here long term, then trade me or release me. I don't know. I do know that Dunbar wants a new contract and definitely was scared a bit by Ruben Foster's injury last spring. Without any guaranteed money in his base of $3.25 million, a situation like that would be bad for Dunbar. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know that he, was, that he was still open to a new contract, even at the same time where you're hearing about this a request to be traded or released. But once camp, training camp hits, the negotiations were or are going to end and he would have been content to leave via frenzy. That's what I was told. I believe that's what others were told as well. I also know Dunbar was on Twitter Monday night after the news hit and spread, and he didn't deny any of it. And I know Dunbar tried to walk it all back Wednesday with Doc Walker on the Team 980. Now, why he did that, I can only wonder or speculate on. It could well be that he didn't, like, that he didn't expect a blowback. Dunbar is tight with Trent Williams, so maybe he expected some of the same fan reaction that Williams largely got in his situation. Fans seem to be, and you guys would know this better because you're the fans, but my take on it was that fans were largely on his side, driven by the respect they have for Williams and probably by the hatred they have of Bruce Allen because he became the number one villain in all this as Williams himself even basically didn't say it in those words, but that's what, that's, that was what we all got. But in my reading of Dunbar's situation, most fans seem to have turned that bitter page and had the attitude of, don't let the door hit you on the way out. I think that's a combination of fans probably tired of the old days and having that fresh start, well, excuse me, having that fresh start feel with Revere in charge. 
I don't know. Again, you guys know better than me because you're the fans. And I don't know all of Dunbar's motives. I do know that he would sign an extension if offered. And I do know he felt slighted that there had been zero contact before now. I was told that they had had some talks with the previous administration, though it never, I don't believe it got so far as a negotiation. It was as much, my understanding is it was as much about Bruce Allen expressing a desire to keep him around. When a player would have one year left on their deal, it was customary for Allen to at least reach out if they wanted to keep them around. One person told me if Dan Snyder really wants Dunbar here, then this wouldn't be an issue. But I don't get the feeling that Rivera will be pushed into a corner over something like this. I'm guessing he wasn't too pleased with this being with the tactics that were employed here. The feeling I've gotten is that they know they must lay the foundation this year for who they are and what they believe and want. They know the Redskins went 3-13 and last year, so if they lose a corner off that team, what are they really losing? Is anyone expecting a massive turnaround in year one? A year where it's like you get a mulligan year. This is going to be the year. It's the first year, and they know that. So this is about establishing your program. You want to win. They're going to try and go out and win, but you've got to establish foundation for your program, and that comes in year one. Dunbar is an excellent corner. This has been a bad secondary. What would you say or do if you were Rivera? One thing you won't do is cater to demands. Coaches who need to win now might feel differently. Rivera is not in that spot. It's not exactly the same thing as the Williams situation. Williams is a perennial pro bowler. In some cases, you make concessions and you try to do things differently. I was talking to one person the other night who said he probably would have redone Dunbar's deal this offseason the way in, in terms of his analysis of the situation, just knowing that he knows about the player, et cetera. And he said he would have probably loaded it with incentives or escalators because of, it, because of his injury history. Solid corner, but he's also missed 14 games combined the past two years. Never started 16 games in the NFL. It's hard to expect a lot of guaranteed money in that situation. He is a smart player who worked his way from an undrafted receiver to a starting corner because of his preparation. I know some teammates in the past, excuse me, some teammates in the past felt he overrated himself as a corner Another say he definitely views him views himself as a legit number one corner, one of the better ones in the league. And I think, to be honest, that's probably how he wants to be paid. I think the injury part will will hurt that. You know, hey, listen, that's confidence, and you need to have it. But I know there were some who played with him who didn't feel like that it, that 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 his his evaluation of himself was warranted. But that's their opinion. Again, Dunbar's entitled to his. And in that position, you've got to play with a high level of confidence and belief in yourself. What I also know is that Dunbar has length and speed. It's why they moved him to corner in the first place. That combination remains tempting, as is the fact that he'll only turn 28 in July. I haven't talked to a ton of people around the NFL about what the Redskins could get in a trade for him. A few people told me they felt like it could be in that third to fourth round range for the reasons I stated. The combination, there's a good part with the length, speed, size, and all that. But the hard part is the injuries, and so that would keep it down a little. After Dunbar's reversal, I had one agent call me and tell me that he's had a different experience with this Redskins group. Clearly, Dunbar disliked the lack of attention, or it made him wonder where, where things were at for himself. This agent had a question about his client as well, and his call was returned within the hour. He said he felt that Rob Rogers was honest and forthright about the situation. His point, sometimes you just have to call and ask, what's up? So where do they go from here? Again, I can't see Rivera, a former linebacker, enjoying any sort of a threat. And if you're Rivera, would you want someone who might possibly carry negative vibes into the locker room because of his contract status? 
That stuff happens all the time, and it's why some teams are reluctant to give guys pay cuts. And I don't know that Dunbar would be that way. I've always liked my dealings with him. Um, I, I've, I've always felt like he's been professional with us. And I don't, you know, and I've all, you know, mo most of the guys that you talk to really like Quentin. So, you know, I don't know that he'd be that way, but that is, the, that is the possibility that you're creating. And I don't think you want, you know, I think if you're Rivera, you kind of want to avoid that. There are some good corners available in free agency. And of course, the Josh Norman situation, sir, at, the, at the least it's uncertain because we don't know anything yet. But, you know, if he, if he gets cut, then you need two corners. They could also draft more. One thing I wouldn't do, though, is alter my draft strategy. I would not make a trade with that second pick just because the perception that you might need a corner now because Dunbar is going to be out the door or, you know, or you've traded him. No. If you think Chase Young is going to be that good, you take him and you build with talent. If you're not sold or think a guy like Jeffrey Okuda can make a similar impact and you can add more picks, then trade him. But Dunbar's situation should not factor into this equation. Don't make a deal out of desperation. That's how you end up giving up high picks for Jason Taylor or TJ Duckett. Do it because it's the right long-term move for the franchise. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Adam Rittenberg and David Newton, my ESPN colleagues, for joining me. As always, thank you for listening. Talk to you next time.